You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Good morning. Thank you, Ricky. Our reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 25, the entire chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's in the Chairback Bible on page 13. And bear with me as we some of these names are a bit foreign to me. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Median, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Latushim, Lumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahar Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Neboeth, the first, firstborn of Ishmael, and Kadar, Ad, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jeter, Naphish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their campments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger." When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. 
And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob, Esau, then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, Jesus, thank you for your word. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. Lord, I pray that you would give Jeremy the words to say that are faithful to your word, full of passion and purpose. God, you would build up your body for those who believe and those who don't would come to a saving knowledge of you. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Chris. Do you believe in fate or free will? Fate or free will? For hundreds of years, thousands of years, folks have been trying to work out which is it. Are the lowercase g, God's in control, and whatever's going to be is going to be, and we have no control over what's going to happen, fate, or do we have agency? We have the ability to make decisions that actually change our outcomes. We have responsibility is God deterministic in what is going to happen in our future, or do we have responsibility? Do you believe in fate or free will? For Christians, this question becomes very personal and very intense, especially when we begin to think about salvation. It can be said like this. Is our eternal destination already determined regardless of our personal decisions and choices? It's determined. Or is our eternal destination determined by our personal decisions and choices? Is it fate or free will? One other way I could put it to you. Are God's eternal blessings to humans sovereignly determined apart from how we respond? Or are we as humans completely responsible for whether we are blessed or rejected by God? Is it fate or is it free will? Well, happy Mother's Day to you, ladies. <laughs> we find ourselves today in Genesis 25. And to be quite honest, I had no intention in trying to wrestle down fate or free will when I popped the text open. But being that we're a church that wants to preach whatever the text says, the sermon has to be guided by what the Scripture provides us. And this, I believe, 
is the big idea of Genesis 25. As we walk through this chapter, what we're going to find is three characters guide us to think through. Is it fate? Is it free will? And these three characters will guide us in our three questions to determine, is it fate or free will? Is it God's sovereignty or human responsibility? If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please open to Genesis 25 so that you can see, I wasn't just making this doctrine up, rather this is the doctrine that our text provides. And the first character we're going to trace, his name is Isaac. Would you say Isaac? Isaac, that's who we're tracing first. Let me put the question to you like this if you're taking notes. Question one, was Isaac the chosen son because of God's sovereignty or because of Abraham's decisions? Was Isaac the chosen son because of God's sovereignty or Abraham's decisions? If you've got Genesis 25 pulled up, you can look right there that Abraham had another wife. Her name is Keturah. Say Keturah. A couple weeks ago, a couple months ago, if you would have said, hey, did Abraham have another wife besides Hagar and Sarah? I would have said, I don't think so. And then Genesis 25 comes up and punches me in the face, reminds me, yes. For those of you wanting to go on Jeopardy, Keturah is another wife of Abraham. And we have in the text a genealogy. In fact, it's not just any genealogy. It is called a segmented genealogy, if that's your final Jeopardy question. There you go. Here's a screenshot that helps you understand who goes where. These are the sons of Abraham and Keturah. Their sons, grandsons, great-grandsons. But if we were the original audience, those Israelites, on the verge of entering the promised land, having just left Egypt, the question that we would be wondering is this, yeah, 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 but what about Isaac? Isaac's the main character here, because if you remember the storyline We had been waiting for Abraham and Sarah to have the promised child. And for a while, wouldn't have been surprised if Abraham thought, is it going to be Lot? No, it's not going to be Lot. Is it going to be Eleazar? No, it's not going to be Eleazar. Abraham wondered, is it Ishmael? No, it's not Ishmael. And now it's Isaac. Yes, it's Isaac. He is the promised child. But we've got some new sons on on the scene. So how are we going to make sense of Keturah's sons? And are they going to threaten the inheritance of the promised child? Look what happens in 5 and 6. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. Gave all he had. To the sons of the concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son, Isaac, eastward to the east country. If you're a son of Keturah, you're getting a little parting gift as you make your way to the east. Remember in Genesis where the east is. East is away from God's place. East is away from God's presence. Keturah's sons would get a party favor, but they would not be getting the promised land. Who did Abraham pick to give all he had? Abraham picked Isaac. So Isaac is now solidified as the exclusive heir of Abraham, verses 7 to 11, we see the funeral and burial of Abraham. Isaac and Ishmael are both there. Abraham's buried right next to Sarah. 
This all is so significant because Abraham has, of course, been promised this land. But had you asked Abraham the day before he died, if he could have articulated, you might have asked him, Abraham, God made you a promise to give you all this land, yeah? And Abraham would say, yes. If you said, Abraham, do you own all the land? Legally, do you have a, do you have a deed that says all the promised land is mine? Abraham would say, no, I don't. In fact, all the land I own legally is a little cave, field of Machpelah, a couple trees. It's where I'm going to be buried. I've got a burial plot. That's all I own right now. Well, what gives, Abraham? He would be able to say, God made promises. God's going to keep that promise. Even if I only own a little parcel of land, someday my kids will own it all. That's the funeral. Just in case we missed who the chosen son was, with all these sons of Abraham around, look at verse 11. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. The chosen son would not be from Keturah. The chosen son would not be from Hagar. The chosen son, the one that God has blessed, that is from Abraham and Sarah, and his name is Isaac. So now we've traced Isaac, who is the central character of this first section, but we come back to the question. Was Isaac the chosen son because of God's sovereignty or because of Abraham's decisions? Well, look in the text. It seems that verse 5 and 6 indicate Abraham decided, and he did. It says it right there, Abraham picked Isaac. So it's free will. But look at verse 11. Who blessed Isaac? God. Well, so it's fate. Question one done, our answer is inconclusive. It seems that God is sovereignly working, and yet humans are making decisions. First section done. First character done, move with me to the second. Verses 12 to 18, this is going to follow Ishmael. And here's the way the question can be posed in this second section. Did Ishmael fulfill God's promises because of God's sovereignty or because of his decision? Did Ishmael fulfill God's promises because of fate or free will? Now, as we get into this, you've got to understand two promises that have been made previously. One to Abraham, one to Hagar, real quick. Genesis 17, there's a promise God makes to Abraham. And it's Genesis 17, 20. And in that promise, God says to Abraham, Ishmael's going to be, he's going to have 12 sons. They're going to be 12 princes. Say 12 princes. That's first promise you got to remember. The second one is actually to Hagar. Before Ishmael is even born, God tells Hagar... Ishmael going to be a doozy of a dude. <laughs> He's going to be quite the fighter. Ishmael is going to be over against his kinsmen. Say over against. Well, those are two promises you have to know as we walk into verses 12 to 18. Look at Genesis 25, 16. Look what it says. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribe. Say twelve princes. 
And look at 25.18. Ishmael's people settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He, Ishmael, settled over against all his kinsmen. Say over against. What this section is showing us is God makes promises and God keeps promises. Both promises that we saw earlier in Genesis, they are coming true already. In fact, if you read Genesis 1 to 50 and you finish there at the end of Joseph's life, at the end of Genesis, and you thought to yourself, man, this book teaches that God keeps his promises, you would be right on. It's exactly what this book is tracing. God makes promises, he keeps promises. But to the question at hand, was Ishmael responsible for these outcomes? Was it his responsibility? Was it his free will that led to these promises being kept? Or was God sovereign in these promises being fulfilled? Well, again, original audience, they would have seen Ishmael having 12 sons, and they would not have given Ishmael the credit for that. Nobody in their right mind would think, yeah, I heard Ishmael, he uh, woke up one day and he said, I have a plan to have 12 sons, not just 12 sons, 12 princes, so I'm going to create a step-by-step plan for how to make sure that my wife gives birth to 12, and they'll all be male, and I will sovereignly, responsibly make all of that happen. And nobody would have thought that because, well, because in our text already, we've seen that there was a lot of infertility. Abraham and Sarah couldn't have a child, and the only person that gives conceptions, God, And like any of us have any decision over the gender of our kid, that's God. God makes those decisions. And so clearly, this fulfilled promise that Ishmael is going to have 12 sons, that is God sovereignly working. And yet, we learn that Ishmael is going to be a donkey of a man. Hee-haw, hee-haw, hee-haw. That's the promise to Hagar. He's a what you would call a punk. Ishmael's the kind of guy, if you're playing basketball with him, you're playing pickup basketball, he's throwing elbows and he's pushing you around. And you might be a Christian, but you think, I'm about to take that boy out right now. <laughs> that's what Ishmael's like. And, and if you were to say, well, that's not Ishmael's fault. Yeah, right. I mean, if Adam and Eve are at fault for what happened in the garden, parents, if your kids are at fault, when they make a mistake, then, then, then Ishmael's at fault. I mean, parents, if, a kid ever, if your kid ever comes up to you and go, I didn't do it. It's not really my fault. Dad, it's really your fault that I did that. I mean, if you hadn't put me in that position, I would not have made that awful decision. Don't buy it. <laughs> uh, Ishmael, despite the promise, he is responsible for being the punk he is. And so we here, we are at the end of the second section, and we're seeing, we, we cannot conclusively say it's all fate, nor can we conclusively say it's all free will. God is sovereignly working, that's in the text, and yet humans, here it's Ishmael, he is responsible. Both are operational. Two sections down. One last section, the third character for us to trace. It's Jacob, in verses 19 to 34. Say, Jacob... Jacob, he is the final character that this chapter traces. In verses 19 and 20, we remember that Isaac and Rebekah married. We met them last chapter. They're struggling with infertility. 
And then in verse 21, man, God's sovereignty is clearly on display. Look at Genesis 25, 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. This chapter shows us that, that it was 20 years after getting married before they had a baby. Good on Isaac if he was praying for 20 years. But it wasn't Isaac's prayers that led to the conception. Nobody in their right mind would think that Isaac deserves a pat on the back and that he was responsible for conception. No, no, no. Conception is a gift from the Lord. It's a miracle. The Lord heard those prayers, and yet here is Rebecca. She is pregnant because of God's sovereignty. But then as she's pregnant, she's having a difficult pregnancy. Look at verse 22. The pregnancy is awful. If any of you ever had an awful pregnancy, you're in Club Rebecca. The NIV version, if that's your text in front of you, it says that the baby's jostled. That's so cute. Baby's jostled. The babies are jostling in there. The, the ESV is a little better. It says they struggled. One commentator suggests that the word we actually ought to translate here is smashing into one another. Smashing into one another. If you've had twins and it felt like an MMA fight in your tummy, that's what she's experiencing. Ding, 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 let's get ready to rumble. And Rebecca's so troubled. Like, what is happening in my stomach? How do we explain such a thing? There's conflict. There's conflict happening in her tummy. A fitting preview of what's going to happen between these two babies for generations. I didn't know this until I studied it. Did you know? Jesus comes from one, one baby, and King Herod comes from the other. These, these two twins are two different family trees that will fight during their lives and long after their lives. Rebecca's having quite a difficult pregnancy. These twins are smashing into each other, so she prays. She prays, says, Lord, I want to know what's going on. Look at 25, 23. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Remember, God had promised, Abraham, you are going to be the father of many nations. Already the genesis of that promise is coming true. We've got two nations in Rebekah's tummy. But what's so interesting is this unpredictable prophecy. The older should always rule over the younger, but not in this situation. It is the younger God has picked. God in his sovereignty has decided it's Jacob, not Esau. Sure enough, 24 to 26, Esau's born first, Jacob is second. And then in 27... When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. I suppose a few might look at this and say, no, 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 that's all fate. But I think if we were to ask those twin boys, if we were to say, did you have any decision making on Esau, you being a hunter? Jacob, you being a refined intellectual? If we asked them, did you have any responsibility in that? My guess is Esau would say, of course, this is what I like to do. So, of course, I'm doing it. 
Of course, I'm practicing. And Jacob had said, yeah, I like to learn how to cook. Esau wants to be kind of blue-collar. Jacob wants to be white-collar. At least that's the way we would translate it today. Or if we asked Isaac and Rebecca, were you fated to have a favorite? I'm convinced they go, no, but I did have a favorite. I picked the favorite. Isaac, he appreciates the son who feeds him. Went to a man's through the belly. Hello, Isaac. Rebecca goes, no, no, my favorite's Jacob. What I'm wanting you to see then is there is human decision-making operational in this section too. God sovereignly allows Rebecca to get pregnant, and yet Rebecca and Isaac are making decisions. Esau and Jacob are making decisions, and that's what we're going to see in the final vignette of Esau selling his birthright. Look at 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, because Edom means red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is the birthright to me? We need to know something about birthright. Here's John MacArthur Jr. He's been preaching for like 50 years. He defines birthright this way. Birthright is a double portion of the inheritance. A double portion of the inheritance. That's what the birthright is. So if you're math people out there, when you have two boys, you actually have three portions of an inheritance. What? Yeah, that's really how it works. Two boys, the inheritance goes three ways. The older gets two of them. The younger gets one. Two-thirds to Esau, one-third to Jacob. That's the way an inheritance would work. That's the way this birthright operates. And being that Jacob is a twin, born likely just a few minutes after Esau, you can imagine how difficult that was for him to have to reckon with his whole life. I wouldn't be surprised if Esau rubbed it in that he was only going to get a third of the inheritance. Like if those boys went out, they were playing a game, hey, you want to play pig? Sure. Esau, he's the hunter, he's the manly man, I'm guessing he won most of the time. But every now and then Jacob made an easy shot. And if Jacob ever won at pig, I wonder if Esau said, I don't care, because I got the birthright, boy. And I wouldn't be surprised that Jacob all his life would hear something from Esau like, oh, it's too bad you were born just a few minutes after me, because you could have had the birthright. Oh, but no, you're younger. Enjoy that third. So here we have in this section, Jacob, perhaps having set this scenario up, having been prepared, having thought through, I have got to get that birthright from Esau. He's then leveraging his abilities in the kitchen to make what I guess Esau thought was a fantastic homemade lentil stew. Fellas, if you make a good homemade lentil stew, Jacob's your, Jacob's your boy here. And he's wanting to get Esau's birthright by trading a cup of stew. Now, Jacob is awful in this manipulative, underhanded approach. But Jacob does get this. And this is important for you to get. Jacob, while he's handling this all the way, in all the wrong ways, what Jacob does get right is that birthright is so precious. Whatever that birthright is, I want it. And he's right in that regard 
even though he's wrong in the way he's trying to deceive Esau or manipulate Esau for it. Esau says, well, I'm going to starve to death if I don't eat. I'll let somebody else decide if that's hyperbole, an exaggeration, or if that's legitimate. Though I would say, even if he was going to starve to death, he would have been better off dying with the birthright than living with stew in his belly. Again, to Jacob's credit, he realizes how important the birthright is, and then he says, swear on it. And Esau does. The trade happens. The stew gets eaten. And look how the text ends. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. The point then of this birthright vignette is revealing Jacob held the birthright in high regard. Esau did not. There is this gift from the Lord that is so incredibly precious, and Esau despised it. What God called good, Esau was shrugging his shoulders at. But having then traced Jacob through this section, how then do we answer our question? Was Jacob the chosen son because of God's sovereignty? Or was Jacob the chosen son because of human decisions? And what we see then is, well, we have to grant that it's God who sovereignly allowed Rebecca to get pregnant. It's God who gave her twins. God who is having those babies ultimately smashing into one another. And God who had Esau born first. There's no doubt that Jacob has no power over that. And yet, there's human decisions operating. Isaac and Rebekah are picking favorites. Esau and Jacob are, are making decisions. Esau is despising the birthright. He is responsible for that. Jacob... He's manipulating and deceiving his brother. Jacob is responsible for that. Here's the point of the text. Fate and free will are both operating in the text. God is sovereignly working, so it's not just human decisions, and yet humans are making decisions, so you can't just say it's only God's sovereignty. But having walked through this text, perhaps you're sitting there going... Phew, thank you for the philosophical points you've made and scratching some itch about God's sovereignty and human responsibility, but pastor, how does this actually matter today? Hello, it's Mother's Day. Genesis 25, are you kidding? I know. What practical benefit does this passage actually have for me today? If that's what you're wondering, we have one more question to consider, and I'm praying and confident that this final question is going to take all of these themes and all of these ideas and it's going to boil it down so you can take this away. I know it's been dense, but follow with me one last question. Are you a chosen son because of God's sovereignty or because of your decisions? Are you a chosen son because of God's sovereignty or your decisions? Here at Mill Creek, the way we do service is we want it to be intelligible to anyone in here who would say, I'm not a Christian. Well, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're checking it out. But predominantly, we're not just preaching to people who don't know Jesus. Predominantly, we're trying to preach to those of you who would say, yes, I believe the gospel. I've trusted Christ for my salvation. I, I am an adopted son of God. I have been chosen I'm a chosen son, which women, I'm not putting you down by using the word son here. I'm lifting you up the way Paul does in 
in saying that in God's economy, he's not just thinking about men, he's thinking about women as well. God uses the word son to talk about all of us as children of God. So that's why I'm using the word son. But what, I, what, what I'm trying to get you to consider is, are you chosen because of fate or free will? So we have one more text we have to consider because as it turns out, in the New Testament, Paul picks up on Genesis 25. If you're in Final Jeopardy and they say, does Paul ever use Genesis 25 in the New Testament? Risk all your money because the answer is yes. And it's in Romans chapter 9. For those of you who are with us, we previously preached through the book of Romans, little by little, all the way through, just like we're going to do with Genesis. And in Romans 9, here is the argument Paul's making, and he actually goes back to Genesis 25 to make his point. And I know this may feel a little dense, but I promise this is the last dense part for you to have to think through scripturally. In Romans 9, what Paul's doing is, is he is talking to Roman Jews who would have said, I am a chosen child of God merely because I have the right mom and dad and a family tree. That's really what some thought. I am of the right ethnicity, and therefore I am automatically going to be receiving God's covenant blessings. And Paul says, say, what? That ain't how it works. And they'd said, oh, yes, oh, yes, it does. In fact, they might go back to Genesis and they'd go, Abraham's my father. And because he's my father, I am in God's people. And Paul says in, Gen in Romans 9, he goes, that's not true because Ishmael could say the same thing. Ishmael could say, Abraham is my dad, and we all know Ishmael's not going to receive God's covenant promises. They'd go, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right, but I'm not from Ishmael's side. I'm from Isaac's side. Isaac and Rebekah are my mom and dad genealogically. Therefore, I'm going to receive God's covenant blessings. And that's where Paul leans into this chapter 25, and he goes, well, that's not true either. Because Esau could say the same thing, and he will not be receiving God's covenant blessings. In fact, even before the boys did anything good or bad, even before they're born, Paul goes to this prophecy to Rebecca and he says, God picked Jacob. God picked Jacob. Not because of anything good or bad they did as kids. Not because, not because God likes a guy in the kitchen who knows how to make lentil stew and he doesn't like hunters. No, no. God picked Jacob because that's what God did. Paul's point is, and Malachi picks it up. Malachi the prophet picks it up later on. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Okay, pastor, so you're tracking with me and you go, well, I guess it is fate. I guess it's God's sovereignty. And I guess it doesn't matter what you decide because God picked Jacob, he didn't pick Esau. Not so fast. That's Romans 9. You keep going to Romans 10. Here's one of the most famous verses in all of Romans 10. Because if you believe in your heart, excuse me, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul's saying in Romans 10, 9, there is something you have to do. And if you only read Romans 10, 9, you'd think, well, I guess it's all on me. But that's just Romans 10, 9. You've got to deal with Romans 9 as well. In, here's what I've been told. Western Christians... You and I who've grown up in this sort of a culture, we come to this question, fate versus free will, and this is what we do. We think it must be one or the other. And, and this doctrine, it can split churches. And you've got people on both sides who go, yeah, yeah, but what about this Bible verse? And there's parts of Genesis 25 that show God's sovereign. We just walked through it. You cannot deny it. 
And yet there are Bible verses that show humans are responsible. You can't deny it. And what I'm wanting you to see then is, as Western Christians, or what I'm hoping you'll grant the premise, what I've been told is, us Western Christians, we think in this dichotomy. We think so binary. We think it has to be one or it has to be the other. It's either all or nothing. And when we come to Genesis 25, and we look at Romans 9, and we look at Romans 10, and we realize, well, both things are operational. It kind of blows our westernized mind. Where our, What I've been told is folks from the East, folks who, folks who have an Eastern religious background, they hear this and they go, totally. Well, which is it? They go, both. Here's the deal, friends. Some of you, you might have walked in today with a framework, a theological grid for how to make sense. Is it fate or is it free will? And, and when I've been on this side of the stage, you might have thought, yeah. Or maybe when I've been on this side of the stage, you've thought, But the reason you're having that response if you came in with a framework is because you love your framework. Here at this church, we're not trying to preach a framework. Here at this church, we're just trying to preach the text. And I don't doubt that there's times I make a mistake of the text. My intention is to actually preach what's there. But if you're here and you didn't like it when I was on this side of the stage, I tell you, well, do business with the text. Sorry if your framework doesn't operate with the text. Or if you like it when I'm over here, if you don't like it when I'm over here, you got work with the text. At Mill Creek, we're not trying to preach frameworks. We're trying to show you what God's word says. What I'm, here's the payout. In Genesis 25 and in Romans 9 and 10, God is sovereign. It's true. And humans are responsible. It's true. Anyone that makes it to heaven is because God's sovereign. And he elected you. He predestined you. And anyone who goes to hell, you're there because you're responsible for your decisions. I think D.A. Carson says it best. Dr. Carson writes this. God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in Scripture to reduce human responsibility. Human beings are responsible creatures. That is, we choose, we believe, we disobey, we respond, and there is moral significance in our choices. What you decide to do matters, Christian. But human responsibility never functions in the Bible to diminish that God is sovereign, or it doesn't make God absolutely contingent, which is him saying, just because you make some decision doesn't mean God's over here going, oh, now I really don't know what to do. I guess I'll just, I mean, because you did that, I've got no choice. Here goes. Both things are operational. And I think this is the best answer to fate or free will. It's called compatibilism. I find it completely biblical. Fate and free will are not mutually exclusive. Biblically, they are compatible. God is sovereign. Humans are responsible. But if you're sitting there thinking, I can't quite get my mind around this, Pastor. I've been battling this fate versus free will question, and I don't know what to do about it. And, and I've heard your explanation, but it's not enough for me. If that's you, I would say this, and, and I'm not trying to be snarky. But this is what I'd say. Just because you don't understand this to the degree you would wish, just because you may not right now have complete intellectual relief you desire, does not mean this isn't true. 
There's plenty of stuff we don't understand. It doesn't mean it's not true. I'm feeling good about this doctrine, but if we were to talk about eternity, if we were to talk about the Trinity, and I want to understand what the Bible says about it, but frankly, some of that's still a mystery. But just because I don't fully understand it doesn't mean it's not true. And so it is with this. If you're not finding the intellectual relief you'd like, I'm happy to have more conversations. I'm happy to wrestle through more texts. But just understand, your ability to comprehend it does not determine its truthfulness. And as people of God's word, we want to make sure this is our authority, not whether we can fully grasp it the way we might wish. And, and realize there are practical, helpful ways this text actually informs us. S sidebar real quick, in evangelism, people have a tendency to want to go fate or free will. For those who run the pendulum way over here, it's very dangerous. There's, there's folks who, when they think about sharing Jesus, they just go to themselves, God is sovereign, and that's it. There's, that's all there is. God's sovereign. So it doesn't matter if I share Jesus with anybody. It doesn't matter if we have missionaries. It doesn't matter if I ever do anything, because if God wants to save them, he'll do it. But, but that's not the way the Bible operates. But on the other side, there's this terrible tragedy if you only believe in free will when it comes to evangelism, because if you're over here on this side of the camp, you think to yourself, I better perfectly understand the gospel. I better perfectly share. I better perfectly understand where my person's coming from. I better perfectly take every opportunity. And if they listen to me and they reject the gospel, who's responsible? Me. And the pressure's unbelievable. And the gift of Genesis 25 is God is sovereign over salvation. And yet, we are called to share Jesus. And even if you do a really miserable job of sharing Jesus, I mean, and which, let's be honest, who here has just crushed it every time they've ever shared Jesus? None of us. I butcher it all the time. But I'm trying to do the best I know how, and God is sovereign in salvation. That's a payout for us. You can share Jesus and then trust his sovereignty. Same with prayer. If you're a kid, or if you're just new to Jesus, you may ask the question, when do we pray? God already knows what's gonna happen. When do we pray? Well, that's because that's you're, 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 you're way over here on this side. You're over here on the pendulum that says, well, God's sovereign, and he is, but that doesn't mean you don't pray. You know why? Because the Bible tells us to pray. <laughs> and yet, God's not up in heaven thinking that your prayers are some quarter token equivalents, and God's some vending machine that goes, you're going to have to pump me full of quarters before I think about answering your prayer, sucker. We don't believe that either. The gift of Genesis 25 helps us with evangelism and prayer, but to the point of this text and to the point of what Paul's saying, it gets us to this question for application. Are you a chosen son of God? Are you chosen? God really does elect for salvation, and humans really have to respond. Both are true in the text. And the question then here is, are you chosen? If you don't believe in Jesus, this is the part, unbeliever, for you to lean in. Are you an adopted child of God? Romans 8, 14, Paul says this, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of adoption as sons. You did not receive the spirit of slavery, forgive me, to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
Are you a chosen son? You know that you're chosen and your eternity is secure if in your heart of hearts you are ready to declare or you have already declared, I am not spiritually born into the right family tree. As wonderful as your mother is on this Mother's Day, you are on your way to being a chosen son of God if you acknowledge spiritually I was born in the wrong family tree. Ephesians 2.3, you are born children of wrath. I am born as a child of wrath. Spiritually, I am not automatically going to inherit God's covenant blessings merely because of my biological mom. That's not the way it works. And you are a chosen son of God if you realize I must be adopted. But in response to that truth, you must believe. You must confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. He's the boss. I'll do whatever he wants. You must believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. Meaning, if we lit you up with truth serum, and we said, is Jesus, did he really rise from the dead? He would say, I believe he did. For those who are chosen son of God, you'd be chosen because God has sovereignly elected you and you have decided in your heart to believe. Which is how this sermon ends, with our sermon in a sentence. Believe God's promise-keeping power. God makes promises, and he powerfully keeps them. He is sovereign, and yet you and I must believe. So do it. Believe God's promise-keeping power. Your mom, my mom, so many moms, they're great moms, but your mom cannot save you. Her faith cannot save you. God sovereignly elects. We, as humans, must respond with belief. Pray with me now that this truth would drill deep in our hearts. God, I do pray that Genesis 25 and Romans 9 and 10 would grant us grace to see your sovereignty and our responsibility. We thank you for Christ who responsibly and perfectly obeyed all that you required and yet under your sovereignty, brought salvation to us. Lord, grant faith to those who don't have it here, even now. Give us grace to respond in faith. Pray for those who do believe, would rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.